Connecting Minds is a space dedicated to honoring the amazing authors, researchers, clinicians, artists, and entrepreneurs who are contributing to our collective evolution or simply making the world a better place. These thought-provoking conversations are intended to expand our horizons, so come with an open mind and let us grow together. Here is your host, Christian Yordanov. Hello and thank you for tuning in to Connecting Minds. My name is Christian Yordanov and I am so excited to bring you this podcast. Today we have our inaugural episode and I present to you Susan Hess-Loger. She is the writer, producer and director of the film called The Way of the Psychonaut, Stanislav Grof's Journey of Consciousness. Now this film is set to be released on the 14th of October, which is a day before this episode is released, which means that if you're listening to this now, you can go to the website, thewayofthepsychonaut.com to watch the film on demand or download it. It's also available on uh, Google Play, Apple TV, and Amazon Direct. I, I for one, cannot wait to watch it. Um, I will also, of course, have the, the links to the film in the show notes of this episode. But in case you have not been acquainted with um, Stanislav Grof's work yet. Very briefly, he is the Czech psychiatrist who is one of the founders of the field of transpersonal psychology, and he's a researcher into the use of non-ordinary states of consciousness for purposes of exploring healing and obtaining growth and insights into the human psyche. Albert Hoffman, the man who first synthesized LSD, called Stan Grof the godfather of LSD. He has done a tremendous amount of psychotherapeutic work and research with LSD before it was made illegal. And he continued his work after that with his development of what is known as holotropic breath work, which is uh, very much still growing around the world as a therapeutic modality. So he's a fascinating man and, you know, he's really contributed a lot to to various fields. Of course, uh, he co-founded transpersonal psychotherapy, psychology, so truly a great man. And Susan has done a great job of telling his story in this film. I, They have some videos on the website already available, or they had already available before the release of the movie that I watched. And just a tremendous job with telling his story. A little bit about Susan. Susan Hess-Loger brings her passion as a social activist to her work as a filmmaker, creating thought-provoking and inspiring films. Her background as a dancer, actress, and perpetual student allows her to craft stories that do more than entertain. She also blends the knowledge and understanding earned from over 30 years of spiritual exploration with her technical experience as a filmmaker, providing her with a unique perspective on building projects that draw the viewer into a heartfelt experience of the story. Susan holds a BA in interdisciplinary studies with a concentration in transformational entertainment and human consciousness and is working on her master's in philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness. Truly a fascinating person. I really, really enjoyed our conversation together. She definitely opened my eyes to several topics um, that I'm going to be researching, a few books I'll be reading um, in this episode, we talk we talk with Susan about basically her journey, kind of uh, how she got into this um, 
you know, Stan, Stan Groff's work, her kind of spiritual explorations, and, and the, her journey with working with Stan on creating the, on producing the, the, this film about him. We also kind of near the end, we also get into some deeper topics that I found fascinating and I hope that you will too. Remember on christianjordanov.com, we'll have show notes for each of our episodes in the future. There'll be links to our guests, to their websites. Uh, with Susan's, um, uh, in Susan's case, we'll have links to her own websites, of course, to, to the film, The Way of the Psychonaut. And I highly encourage you to explore those websites. There's a lot of really good, valuable content there. There's a lot of interviews with some of the experts that were in featured in the way of the psychonaut and um, uh, kind of clips of them from the film itself. So there's a lot of really, really interesting uh, stuff on Susan's websites. Of course, check out the show notes. Another thing, this interview is also available in video on YouTube. There'll be a link in the show notes in your podcast or podcast player. And yeah, I think I think that is all. I really sincerely thank you for joining us on this first episode and I hope that you will keep coming back for more. We have some amazing guests lined up. I've already inter- interviewed 12, so it it has I've been so um it's been difficult to restrain myself from you know launching it all together but it uh, patience patience is a virtue as they say so i will be working hard to bring you some amazing people over the coming weeks months hopefully years i hope you stay with us i hope you find these conversations as interesting fascinating illuminating as i do and um yeah thank you for joining us now without further ado here is our guest susan hess loger all right, so today on the Connecting Minds podcast, we have Susan Hess Loger. Susan, thank you so much for spending an hour or so of your time today. It's my pleasure. Nice to meet you, Christian. Nice to meet you too. So um, you must be very, very busy. Um, I believe you are releasing the movie that we'll be discussing for the most of the, the episode on the 13th of October, was it, or the 15th? 14th. 14th, okay. Okay, so it, it must be... A lot of stuff right now to coordinate, right? Yeah, so that's even even all the you know more of an honor to have you on. Um, so let, let's start with um, a little bit of your background. Can you tell us tell us a little bit about your background and what kind of got you into filmmaking and how how you got to where where you are today? Well, I actually come from a ballet background. I started as a ballet dancer and. Um, was actually danced one year with San Francisco Ballet. And then at the age of 18, just pretty much decided that wasn't what I came here to do and um, modeled for a number of years and acted for some period of time. And again, um, realized that it's not really what I like to do. But it was when I was acting and I was watching how productions took place. I saw the crew, um, camera, lighting, I saw all the elements that that come into play. And then very disillusioned, I left New York City and moved to the West Coast and spent nine months in um, Grants Pass, Oregon. And I ended up working with children, uh, middle school students, at-risk youth. Uh, I, I um, 
what did I do? Choreographed a musical for amateur community members that wanted to participate in a, in a musical. And what I discovered was the greatest joy I'd ever felt was seeing other people do well, helping them achieve their best. And what had always been sort of this dissatisfaction with whatever I did, because I needed other people to tell me that I was good. Suddenly I felt that I was, um, doing something that was really of uh, value. And, and I discovered this tremendous sense of joy. And that just propelled me to um, write stories. And uh, I did a, um, produced and wrote a feature length film that I also acted in. And then I ended up directing a series Nerves of, Steel, of- was it? Is that the Nerves of Steel? Nerves of Steel was my first documentary project about the ballet studio where my daughter was dancing. Right, the, right. the feature film is called Not Dead Yet. And it's about a bunch of women turning 50 and, you know, realizing that, wait a minute, you know, even though society thinks we have no more value, that's not true. And so it was sort of paralleling what I saw women facing as they reached that transition in their life. And then the other documentary that I did that actually convinced Dan Groff to work with me is called SOAR, S-O-A-R. And it's about two sisters and one is a quad amputee and she's a choreographer and she was a dancer. And it's about this story between she and her sister who has all of her limbs and then Kiera who lost her limbs at age two because of a blood infection. And, um, and so that was on PBS here in the United States, uh, public broadcasting. And I shared it with Stan. And when he saw that, he felt um, that he could really um, work with me. He felt that I respected their story, that I, I had compassion and empathy, and um, that I understood how to tell a good story. Actually, um, I'm glad you kind of mentioned the the you know your your background in ballet because I was going to ask you about that because um, uh, I was just reading through kind of your website, your bios, and stuff like that, and I mentioned to my girlfriend, um, you know, that you you were doing ballet, and because she 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 uh, has been doing ballet since the age of four, and she danced for the Lithuanian national uh, ballet, and similar to you, she had to go to the big city. Uh, albeit smaller than New York when she was, um, I think she was 13 on her own. So she had a similar kind of journey like you, you know, but um, very, very, very interesting. So uh, what what actually got you into Stan Groff's work? Well, um, I, another part of my story is that I um, never felt like I belonged on earth uh, that I, as a kid, I dreamt of flying. I jumped off our roof when I was five years old. I try to put that into the opening of the movie so that, you know, people have this idea of, I imagine I'm not the only one who feels like, uh, you know, wait a minute, why am I here? How did I get here? How does this place work? And so I, it wasn't until my thirties that I discovered shamanic journey work, working with Michael Harner. And, um, and so I, I actually was able to go to a dimension of consciousness and meet a group of teachers. And I began to gain real understanding of, of what, 
who I am and how this world works and the idea that there are dimensions of consciousness, that there are beings or spirits that are here to work with us. And for three years, I, I had another meditation technique that allowed me to go there as well. I went every day for three years and had a relationship with these spirits and they worked with me and, and gave me information and helped guide my life in a very difficult period. At the time I had breast implants and I became very sick. And it was a moment in the United States where there was this huge, it was in the early nineties. Um, it was this huge sort of wave of women who were having serious health complications because of breast implants and so I was very public when I got them out. I'd done it because I felt that I wasn't enough of a woman if I didn't have a certain breast size. And so there was a lot of shame and I was able to clear that. And, um, and I would not have been able to face that without this support that I was getting. And so um, I ended up leaving the United States. I went to France. I met my husband. We got married. And then we couldn't have children. And I tell this story in the movie just briefly to let people know what drew me to Stan. But it was, it was this understanding that I had associated myself to a dimension that wasn't part of really this physical place. And so, yes, there was surgery involved that helped me become pregnant. But I let go of that spiritual practice. And I fully got here on the planet. It's like, if you're going to have a physical act of pregnancy and giving birth, you need to be fully here. And I wasn't. And so I made that choice. And when my kids got to a certain age, I tried to go back out through the shamanic journey work, nothing, nothing. And, um, and so then I just felt like, but I need that information. I need that connection. I'm ready. I thought, well, let me see if I can do LSD. That opened me up when I was younger in my 20s. That's what sort of opened me to the whole idea. But now I'm a middle-aged woman. It's illegal. Uh, I have children. Um, where am I going to find it? You know, what do I do? <laughs> you know, hey, kids, I'm going to go do some LSD, you know? No. So, uh, so I thought, okay, I'll participate in a trial. And I started looking into psychedelic trials. And then I found Stan's name. I saw, oh, holotropic breathwork. I've done rebirthing. I can do that. So I found, I said, but I want to hear him speak. I went to his website and I highly recommend anyone who hasn't visited his website, so many papers, so much information, so many books. I was able to read so much and I thought, well, I want to learn from him. So I signed up for a workshop that he would be speaking at and I, I heard him speak he covered all the subjects that I had loved so much, mythology, quantum physics, tantric science, shamanic journey work, um, you know, all these theories of Eastern spiritual traditions. And I thought if I tell his story, then I will complete my understanding of knowledge and um, be able to share what I had learned up to that point. So it just, it just, I had to tell a story. So what, what year did you uh, come across his work? It's 2013, roughly? I think. Okay. Yeah, okay. 2013. And then you, uh, you started planning the movie in 2014, correct? Well, 2013, when I first met him, um, I really wanted to tell his story. But 
at the time his um, deceased wife, Christina, was still living, Stan and Christina's health was not good. Um, and uh, Stan was just sort of pulling back from public life. And so there wasn't really access to him. And then I learned that his wife, Christina, passed in 2014, in June. Then there was a conference honoring him in October. I had become interested in archetypal astrology, which is something that Stan developed with Richard Tarnas when they were at Esalen. And so I had a reading by someone named Matthew Steltzner. And Matthew looked at my chart and he said, and I told him what I wanted to do. I want to tell Stan's story. And he said, well, your chart is perfect. It aligns with Stan's, you know, your uh, Saturn, second Saturn return and Stan's third Saturn return. And this is perfect. You know, you're the one, there's a conference, you need to go. (laughs) And I did. And I was able to meet Stan and found courage and just said, I want to make a movie about you. And um, May and Bill Melton joined me. And it was their participation that really got this thing going. Mm. Okay. So, I think for for folks that are not so familiar with um, uh, Stanislav Grof, can you maybe give us a brief history of, you know, the he has had a very rich life. So it will be a difficult um, uh, and lengthy story to tell. But can you give folks an idea of who this man was, what he did, and what um, aspects of his life did you cover in? Uh, the way of the psychonaut, Stanislav Grof's journey of consciousness? Well, I actually um, tried to give the full scope of his life. He grew up in in Nazi-occupied Prague. And he was, I think, eight years old when um, Prague was, you know, the Nazis arrived and just took over. So he had the experience of of the Holocaust. Um, There were Czech resistance fighters that had escaped and were dropped in by parachute from England. They managed to uh, blow up or shoot um, this Reinhard Heydrich, which was the third highest ranking officer in the Nazi um, you know, SS party. And he was the architect of the Holocaust. And he died of his wounds a few days later. And Hitler um, wanted to kill 10,000 innocent um, Czechs. And he ended up killing 5,000. But while these resistance fighters were hiding, Stan remembers every few minutes a siren going off, which signified that they had just killed another innocent citizen because they wanted the local population to give up these resistance fighters. Stan was 12 years old at the time. And males over the age of 15 uh, were, were the people that were pulled for those assassinations. And um, so they, they had a, after the Nazis were um, defeated, they had a like three years of peace and then the communist takeover took place. So he grew up with these, the Nazis, then the communists. And as a student, he was arrested and held in jail for a few months. This would have destroyed his career. Um, his brother Paul says that this would have just destroyed his career. With that mark, no one in the family would have been able to advance beyond anything but just menial labor. And for some reason, Stan was the only one of the students that were arrested that got away with it. They couldn't charge him with anything. Um, then 
the director of a school where he went was sick when Stan arrived, recovering from a heart attack, I think, never read his file. So Stan was this amazing student. And when he graduated, they um, they gave him a, I mean, President Gottwald, you know, head of this communist party, gave him a gold medal publicly. And so he was about to get into medical school. And now it's like, but wait a minute, he was arrested, but they couldn't prove anything. He got this gold medal. It's too embarrassing to go back. We can't take that medal back. So they let him go into medical school. His brother, Paul, was able to go to medical school. And Stan excelled again. And um, it was his first LSD experience, as he calls it, a freshly baked psychiatrist that um, changed his life. Prior to that, everything he did was um, electroshock therapies and insulin-induced comas. And um, I think he did, I hope I don't get it wrong, I think he did like 10 um, insulin comas a day and um, 15 to 20 electroshock sessions a day. So it was just this factory system of, of shocking. He calls it medieval psychiatry. And so when he discovered psychedelics, that was it. So 10 years of research. First, is this pharmacology? Can a psychedelic, can we tell what it's going to do? And the answer was no. There's no, um, you, you can't, one person takes the same substance more than once has a totally different experience. There's no predictability. People, um, you give the same substance to a different, you know, series of different kinds of people. Everybody has a different experience. So there was no way, it's not pharmacology. It's nothing you can predict like an antibiotic or a, you know, a aspirin or something. Just yeah. can't do that. It's an amplifier of the psyche. And so then Stan spent 10 years or this part of that 10 year period was, so what does it do? And that's where he discovered that it, it unlocks the deep psyche and, and transpersonal psychology, which he founded with, co-founded with Abraham Maslow and Tony Sudich, is the idea that the deep psyche represents also the collective unconscious. And so all we might begin by sort of going in and exploring aspects of ourself, but at some point we sort of go beyond what it is that represents our personal experience in this lifetime. And we go into the collective experience and, and also often into our past lives. So transpersonal psychology was trying to say we are more than our um, biography from the moment we're born. And he also saw that the birth process itself had a dramatic influence and there were four stages and that it would, depending on how those experiences went and the kind of birth experience an individual had, um, those unconscious memories could be influencing decisions and behaviors as that person went through their life. So he was able to dramatically help people by... Um, allowing them to re-experiencing, re-experience these profound, often traumatic uh, memories and let them go because as an adult, they had the maturity to gain objectivity. So um, that represents his work. He went on to the United States, 14 years at Esalen, uh, work at Spring Grove. Then LSD was shut down and his time at Esalen was bringing in thought leaders in quantum physics, psychology, um, uh, all kinds of um, 
different biology, Rupert Sheldrake, he, he, Fritjof Capra. There were so many people that came through Esalen sharing their knowledge from all around the world, from all walks of life and many different perspectives. And it was this tremendous learning experience for all involved. And it just kept rippling out into society for decades, you know, and mm. still influencing us. I love, um, well, first of all, I love the um, little segment, because for, for folks listening, their little um, segments of some of the interviews, I'm not sure if it's all the interviews uh, of folks in the film. So I'll have links in the show notes for, for people to watch. They're very interesting. But um, I was watching a few of them today, and I love Rupert Sheldrake's work. I've been kind of immersing myself a lot into it. And um, it's so interesting to see how many of and we're talking some serious heavy hitters that are featured in the movie um that how many people he influenced um it's just incredible and 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 how those people's ideas and theories and and and, and research fed back and enriched his work it's just a really amazing process which i feel like you've really captured well even though I've only seen snippets and, you know, I've read a little bit of Stan's work and some of his biography, but I also love the video um, where you talk about what you just mentioned, those perinatal matrices, the birth perinatal matrices, uh, you know, one to four and um, how, you know, how important they can be, at least for some people in in shaping our behavior, our personalities, and and, and and certain, to a certain extent, the negative patterns of our behavior. But um, what I, I I can't remember was it yourself or someone else? But you you talk about how um, many cultures around the world have these rites of passage that potentially are a way, similar to how psychedelics can induce for us to access. And process these perinatal experiences. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that? I know you know some about that. Yeah, it it uh, it has a lot to do with um, Rupert Sheldrake's, um, not Rupert Sheldrake, um, Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell met Stan uh, in the early '60s, I believe. And Joseph Campbell is one of the most famous mythologists. He he was a huge student of Jung, Carl Gustav Jung, and um, and so Joseph Campbell brought this amazing perspective of, of mythological beliefs from around the world. And, and he had what he called the monomyth. And he could never understand how these cultures that had no connection with each other had a similar rite of passage that involved this myth, this death-rebirth myth. Then when he met Stan and heard Stan's presentation about the four perinatal matrices, he understood that these cultures were reliving the memory of their birth. And, and so it made sense to him that this is something every human being must experience and that it must have this profound impact on the psyche. And so a rite of passage, which is what a breathwork session might be or a psychedelic session and in indigenous cultures, it's, it's what happens as a young person goes through puberty and the idea is that you confront these fears. You have this death rebirth experience so that you reach a certain level of maturity and you can become a functioning responsible member of your community. 
And so that's, that's really how, you know, Stan, through his friendship with Joseph Campbell, you know, sort of came to this understanding of what, what that process represents. Now, do you, uh, do you cover how Stan developed holotropic breathwork in the, in the, in the movie? I don't go into, I mean, he, I don't spend a lot of time on how he developed it. Essentially it was because they, um, drugs weren't allowed and people that were arriving, Stan may briefly discuss it, but people were coming from around the world and they wanted an experience and it couldn't just be theory. And so Stan noted that people would breathe heavily towards the end of an LSD session. If something wasn't resolved, he would encourage them to breathe more. And so he thought, so breathing deeply and regularly will cause people to go into a deeper state. And he initially, um, they, he was, I'm trying to think, everybody was breathing at once and he was taking care of everybody, but he hurt his back and he couldn't get up and down. And so they decided that um, people would pair off and one would breathe and one would sit. And Stan speaks about in the end that that's really one of the greatest healing aspects of the breath work is that for three hours, someone is going to give you their undivided attention and whatever you need, they will be there for you. And so uh, he talks about there's commission and that is things that we experienced that were done to us that caused us trauma. And then there's omission, things that we didn't get that we needed in order to feel like we deserve to be loved. And so for this three hours, you deserve to be loved and you get the sitter's 100% attention. That's amazing. Now, I know we, we kind of talked a little bit before we started recording. Um, could you give folks a little bit of an idea how how the journey progressed once once um, Stan was convinced that you were the right person, you know, to 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 do this production. How did uh, things unfold? Well, we started um, we started just getting background meeting together. Then there was a process of trying to write a story. I didn't want to waste hours filming, 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 and then have so much footage I didn't know what to do with. So I felt, let's just write a story. And so we wrote a story. Stan would read it, give me feedback. And once we agreed on what that story was, then I started filming um, reenactment sequences that would bring to life some of the key moments of his process. And concurrently, every time I met, pretty much I was asking questions. I would ask him to tell his story. So I would have him to describe what we might be seeing. And I was also um, asking him to explain, you know, what is the psyche? I didn't understand when I first started working with him. Uh, what is an archetype? There were things that I came, I mean, I felt that I represented the general audience. I don't have a background in psychology. I, I'm 62 and I'm working on getting a master's. You know, so I'm I'm kind of like not I'm not really fully up to speed in everything that Stan knows and shares, and so I was learning and asking questions about what he knows and and how he knows it, and so um, that guided our interview process and how I tell the story. So the reenactments, you know, what does an insulin coma look like? What does an electroshock therapy look like? 
uh, Stan would come back and say, yes, you know, but I would have, I would have cleaned with alcohol before I gave the shot, you know, and it's like, well, right, Stan, right. I, I'm not going to reshoot it for that, you know, <laughs> but, or the fluid goes so fast, you know, okay, we'll slow that down. But, you know, or no, that's not quite how that works. Okay. So we would reshoot to meet the way it really took place. And, and Stan felt comfortable in the end that our reenactments are accurate and accurately reflect what he did. And it makes me happy because Stan has now a accurate portrayal of, in his own words, his beliefs and his theories with imagery and storytelling to support it so that it's more easily understood. And there's less possibility of his teachings being distorted as we move forward into the future because he got to explain it in his own words and he he approved the imagery that we used to explain it. Mm. And where did you shoot? All over. I mean, I, I'm oh. in Portland, Oregon, so the reenactment footage was in my house, in a studio, uh, outdoors, uh, you know, wherever we could find a place to shoot. We worked with a local dance company to um, incorporate them into this perinatal um, sequence. Uh, most of the interview footage took place down in California in uh, different people's homes, um, some in Stan's house. Initially, it would just be me with a camera and a little baby lighting kit trying to do everything and, of course, not doing all of it well. And then I was able to hire a crew and, um, and worked with a cinematographer who lit and filmed. And, you know, for the most part, everything was very professional. Yeah. So you, you probably didn't have a massive budget to work with for this. I still haven't been paid. And I mean, yeah. I, I put my own money into it and I'll probably never get it out, but I, yeah. I don't care because yeah. I mean, sure. I'd like to get paid. <laughs> that would be nice, but um, it's more valuable. I feel to um, get this information out there. We're at a point in our human evolution where we could just be wiped off this planet. If we really don't change the way we treat the natural world, reduce our impact on it, and how we live together. That requires a massive shift out of our, our limited understanding of who we are and, and what we are entitled to. And so I don't see that happening without these powerfully transformative experiences. And, you know, coining Rupert Sheldrake, the more people that have these experiences, whether through breathwork, spiritual emergence, can be also Vipassana, shamanic journey work. I mean, there's no limit to how you can get in to these states and have access to these dimensions. But without that, I don't believe we can, we can come to a critical mass of enough people having these experiences. And as Rupert would say, once they're in the collective, once they're in that field of consciousness, it's easier for the, those who are less likely to make that shift, to be drawn into it. So it, it, you have to have pioneers willing to just sort of find their way there, and they strengthen that, that access to these dimensions, and then other people, it will be easier for them to follow. Yeah, yeah. 
I love that. I, and this is actually why I, I reached out to you because th- these are the kind of people that I want on the podcast is folks that are either, you know, accelerating or breaking new ground in our collective transformation by first either spreading knowledge or by actually exploring, um, you know, the realms of the unconscious as to, to kind of quote uh, one of Stan's books. Um so what's what's kind of the the plan now? You're you're did you mean to launch earlier in the year? I think you said, and then kind of obviously COVID threw a spanner in the works. Well, we had thought that we would, um, you know, we would bring the film to conferences that we might, you know, I might participate in panels and things like that. And in the end, um, that just didn't work out because everything was happening virtually. And, and then um, to me, it felt that the expert interviews, as you say, represent thinking that is critical. We don't teach, I don't think anywhere, the full sort of scientific paradigm that currently is embraced uh, that, that is, that is acknowledged the quantum physics, uh, you know, Akashic field that Irvin Laszlo speaks of, uh, the morphic resonance and, uh, morphogenetic fields that Rupert speaks of. There are concepts in science that would dramatically shift our understanding of what the world is and how we participate in it. If it was taught and it is not, And so my goal in sharing information from these various experts was to introduce people to these points of view, to this information, and to the individuals that are continuing to push this envelope and to um, get that information out there. So, uh, you know, I feel that what we shared over the course of the summer was probably better than participating in conferences and just limiting the focus to the movie because it really became an opportunity to share about 90% of what I filmed and, uh, and educate people in the process. And all those Q and A's are available on the website through the live stream archive page. You just have to become a member. Um, so many, you know, people that participated, nobody asked for money as long as it was made available for free, they were happy to participate. Mm. That is so amazing. And definitely we'll have the link for that because I wasn't aware there were actual Q and A's with, with these, these guys. And these are amazing people, you know, guys like, um, we already said Rupert Sheldrake, but you know, Jack Cornfield and, oh, just, uh, uh, you know, Robin Carhart Harris and Rick Dublin is there. So I think this will appeal to a very wide audience, uh, this film, um, I kind of forgot what I was going to ask you next. <laughs> <clears throat> so, we what, what is what is, what would be the distribution channel for people that want to watch the movie? Uh, we are in the process of making the film available through Apple TV, um, Google Play, Amazon Direct, and then through the website itself. With Vimeo um, has a streaming platform and a video on demand. It will be available for purchase, which would be a download or for streaming. And um, 
And so everything is available through the website. And then again, if you did a search on Apple TV beginning October 14th or soon after, um, there will be access to the film. And we have it subtitled in nine different languages. So English is there, of course, but there's also um, Czech, German, French, Brazilian Portuguese, uh, simplified Mandarin, um, Russian, Italian. Um, so all these lang and Chinese. I said Chinese. So all these languages will be available and Spanish, Latin American Spanish. So the idea was that um, there are quite a number of breathwork practitioners and facilitators that have been trained over the many years since Stan introduced his technique with, that he that his wife at the time, Christina Groff, had participated in, um, that these facilitators be able to train their own generation of facilitators and that the film might serve them, as well as these yeah. interviews to explain some of the thinking behind. Yeah, I did, I did actually, I was going through some of the resources that you linked to from the Way of the Psychonauts website, and I, I even saw there is... Um, I think it's a three-year course in the Czech Republic in English, as well as obviously Czech, that I am very seriously considering, not this year, but next year potentially starting. So, um, you know, this movie would definitely bring that to the attention of more and more people out there, which I, I think, you know, it's it looks like a tremendous amount of work that you've put in for obviously no no immediate reward for yourself. But I believe, and and you know, I have to thank you for your work because the collective truly um, benefits from this work, and you're probably gonna earn yourself a good few karma points, right? Good karma points for this. I, I say <laughs> I mean, that. I say that in the United States, we're having a pretty rough uh, period of. Um, I guess it's the Pluto return for the United States, and Pluto is the planet of disruption. And uh, you've got, just as I said, that our glass recycling happened outside with a big crash. Uh, Pluto is about destruction and destroying things, sort of this primordial creative energy that has to wipe something out so something new can take place. And so when I look at what's happening in the United States and people are going, how can they get away with this, you know, or what's happening? And I always say, you cannot escape karma. And so... Mm. For those who take on responsibility but don't do well with it and cause suffering for others, those are bad karma points. And I would hope that that this project helps people. And um, I wouldn't mind getting some good karma points. That's probably worth more yeah. in the long run than any financial gain. Yeah. Do you know, I, I don't mean to derail too much, but... Uh, um, some book I read uh, fairly recently said if we were to take an even wider view of the world and the cosmos really in the universe, it's there is no good or bad. And we're all, you know, players uh, in a game or in a theater. We're actors and we all have roles. You, you know, you have the good role. I have the bad role. Someone has the other role. And apparently, well, at least this particular author's um, uh, explanation was in the end, the bad guys actually get even more good karma points than the good because they took on 
the extra responsibility of being the bad guy. And it takes really um, evolved, advanced beings to be able to, you know, make the sacrifice in mm. order to do that. So I, I suppose on a much grander scheme of things, maybe there's nothing bad or good happening. It's just the way, you know, the physical realm is evolving. But if we were to scale it back to, you know, our own human consciousness, we certainly ha seem to have this instinct to want to avoid uh, negativity and bad and push towards the good. And this is definitely you and your team are, are um, you know, helping us veer in that direction and just actually uh how big was your team uh for the for the for the project basically me uh stan and brigitte <laughs> co-produced yeah. you know in terms of um helping to raise money helping to verify the integrity of my work but i did most i did all of the editing and i worked wow. with an incredibly talented motion graphics person i would create these sequences if anyone's familiar with editing software, um, you layer things. So there's maybe 10 layers of video and I'm fading in and out of things, blending. I would make things bigger, make them smaller, turn them, rotate them, you know, do all kinds of things. And the best I could do using Premiere Pro and then this person, Scott Graves, would take what I had done, bring it into After Effects, which I don't know as a program, and smooth it out, clean it out, make it more elegant, more beautiful. And his work, he just he just made everything so beautiful. And I was just very grateful for that. And I want to come back to what you said about the karma, because I completely agree with that point of view. And, and in the big scheme of things, you know, we take turns having lifetimes on this earth, and every lifetime is an opportunity to grow. And there's a full spectrum of experience that we need to pass through. And so there will be times where we're the victim or the perpetrator. And I believe that depending on a lifetime, a uh, series of lifetimes that, it, and I actually saw this in my ayahuasca, first ayahuasca experience, that it, we take turns flipping, you know, mm. between one lifetime to the next, which sort of perpetuates an endless cycle of suffering. And that there that we don't have to wait for the next lifetime to sort of escape the duality that is inherent in the physical world. It's the nature of, of the material uh, dimension that you have a positive and negative pole and that they, they balance each other. There will always be equal amounts, but it's held within a greater whole. And to me, um, from my experience, we escape suffering when we can attain a perspective from that greater unity. And that is achieved through a psychedelic session, a shamanic journey, meditation, yoga. And I do believe that a daily practice is really valuable in just connecting our energies to this place of peace and love. And Irvin Laszlo would call it unconditional love. That's how mm. he describes the intelligence that shapes the universe. So just to say that. Um, well, that was actually a perfect segue because um, I was going to ask you, first of all, I, I noticed, I saw on LinkedIn that you are, and you already mentioned that you're doing a master's in the California Institute, Institute of Integral Studies. Uh, so you're, you're clearly a student of, you know, the 
philosophy and cosmology and, um, you know, of course, consciousness. But um, I was going to ask you what daily and may maybe not, not just daily, but occasional other practices do you utilize to, you know, tap into this, you know, field of unconditional love or, or, you know, the, the, the field that permeates all of the physical world, what do you do yourself uh, to kind of get in there and, you know, explore it? Well, I had the um, good fortune to encounter some techniques, some that are based in Tibetan Buddhism and some that are based in um, Hinduism. Uh, one is called the Sri Chakra in the Sri Vidya. And it's a chakra meditation where you're um, you're working with the energies of each chakra, and you're you're acknowledging uh, you're treating them as dimensions, and that they're almost worlds. And you're you're kind of developing the your awareness of those energies, and really giving your attention to each of them, opening them, clearing them, and then really focusing on this point above your head, which is about eighteen inches above your head, which is the portal to these dimensions of higher consciousness. And so it's really developing that capacity to being fully grounded, to be able to go up very parallel to shamanic journey work, which I'm also circling back to, because now that I've, able, I've been able to sort of build that connection up, I feel like shamanic journey work will work again. And it, it is working. Um, the other thing that I do is something called ch, C-H-O-D, and it's this Tibetan Buddhist practice of, um, it's sort of ritual sacrifice in the sense that you imagine yourself uh, as big as the universe and you're offering yourself to these higher beings that are so delighted with your sacrifice that they bless you. And then, you know, your spirit is out of your body at that point. And now you imagine all these souls that from all these dimensions, many in the middle world, as Michael Harner might say, souls that have agendas that aren't here for necessarily the best, you know, uh, for human evolution, that they feed on you. And by feeding on your purified form, they're cleansed of what might hold them back from moving forward. I've studied quite a bit of, you know, different perspectives and there's a similar theme is the idea of physical dimension that we live in as a sort of a, of a middle world. And then there are upper worlds of the higher evolved spirits and dimensions, more subtle dimensions of consciousness. And then the lower world, which would be the earth and animal spirits and things like that benevolent, both sides without agendas. And the passage from this middle world to the upper world is a sort of a passerelle or a bridge. And, and if you haven't practiced that passage, you, in the course of your passing, someone might get confused and of not go there. Uh, a death that happens abruptly, a suicide, an accident, um, if you're not prepared, then you might not make it. And then you're kind of lost in this limbo. And the goal of Ch is to help those spirits find their way to this dimension and begin to do the work necessary for the what comes after, be it another reincarnation or, or not 
you know, coming back into physical form, but remaining in a more subtle dimension. Yeah, these Tibetan, um, I'm kind of reading a bit here and there where I can. I I recently, I have it here. um, I got a book in in a secondhand bookstore, the Tibetan Yogas of Dream and Sleep. And since starting to read this book, I've noticed, actually I had my first lucid dream, I think two or three days ago ever in my life. And I, I had read uh, or I had heard someone say that if you find yourself in a lucid dream, you must not try to control the, the dream. But um, I, I, it was just really awkward and I kind of ruined it. But I've, I've been noticed, I've been tapping into, I've been more aware of my dreams and I've been dreaming a lot more. Do you do any practices like that w- 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 with regards to dreaming or while sleeping? Well, I use... I use dreams, um, you know, like when I'm working on the film and I'm trying to come up with how the movie should work or how do I resolve something? How do I show something? How do I bring it to life? Often I'll just go to bed. And when I wake up in the morning, like about an hour before I wake up, I'll see it. It'll just play out in my mind. Or I'll have dreams that are very clear, often that feel that I'm out of my body visiting something else or I am somewhere else. So I try to remain open to them. Um, and uh, I, I, don't, I haven't cultivated a practice of dreaming, but I really rely on them in periods of creativity for providing me with either the language or the imagery I need to complete something. And do you consciously, like said, set an intent before you go to sleep or does it just uh, spontaneously arise? It's much more helpful in going to bed to say, you know, help me understand what I'm trying to do here. Help me, you know, show me the best way to do it. And then you just go to bed with, I really want to understand the best way to do this. And then you go to sleep. And when you wake up, generally, as you're on the edge of coming awake, that's where the ideas come. Or as Richard Tarnas says, always have something next to the bed, because whatever comes up, if you don't write it down in that moment, you probably won't remember it. And so I also would do that. Very cool. Well, I, one thing I actually meant to ask you earlier, because you 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 talked a little bit about um, you had a reading prior to approaching. I think Stan about the movie. Can you tell? Wait, I'm going to include any links or resources you, you you mentioned. Can you give us? Because I have a particular interest in this. Can you give us any resources, authors, uh, or other um, you know uh, whatever books? about astrology and how we can kind of use that to, you know, not, not just to, to know if we're going to, you know, win the lot or get a raise, but for actual more inner work and collective transformation. Well, Richard Tarnas wrote a really powerful book called Cosmos and Psyche. And I were actually studying that book and I read it previously before I even started on this project. He looks at 3000 years of the earth's history and charts what happened through the lens of the planetary transits. So certain planets, Saturn and Pluto together, result in in often world wars. Uh, Uranus, Pluto, uh, whether they're on top of each other, which would be a conjunction, or on opposite sides of the sun, that would be an opposition, or whether they're square, you know, those are called hard aspects. And they're either amplifying each other. Pluto can have an impact on Uranus. Uranus can have an impact on Pluto. And when you 
when you learn to understand how these cycles, these are forces influencing human behavior. The idea is that if you understand these forces and how they work together and influence human behavior, you can start to kind of objectively not feel like you're, imagine you're in a surf and the waves keep hitting you and you're tumbling, tumbling, tumbling. Well, if you learn how to surf, you learn how to read the waves, you learn how to stay on top of them, then you can navigate what's coming at you and and not feel uh, powerless. And so that's a real value of the archetypal astrology. Um, mm. So I can, I'll send you, you know, information about these things, but that's the perspective of archetypal astrology. And it's very valuable because you begin, you know, by when you have access to this information, and especially when you work with people that have understood on a deep level through years of work and an intuitive level, what it means for a particular individual it can help make sense of a lot of what's happened in, in someone's life and give you a sense of perspective about your past, give you a sense of perspective about where you are right now. And um, even looking back and looking at the charts of people you're interacting with, you can start to see where the conflicts arise, when they started, you know, and how they might resolve. So it just, it, I think it takes away this feeling of powerlessness and, and, um, you know, confusion and fear. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Fascinating. Wow. All right. Um, I'm actually, I, I wrote that down. Richard Tarnas, I'm definitely be looking into his stuff. I have a book on, on a very old book from the eighties. It's supposed to be a good book on astrology. I still haven't cracked it open. Um, so did you actually, uh, have readings or kind of analyze when to, um, release the, 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 the movie? No, no, you know, I didn't, I, I, I don't, the only time that I used astrology was when I was trying to determine to have an experience. If I was going to have a inner journey, um, and I was, whether it was ayahuasca or LSD or something like that, cause I did have a few high dose sessions that were very different from the exploration I had as a younger person mm. and they were very powerful. And, How high um, are we talking? Say that again, sorry. How oh, high are we talking? Initially with LSD, anything above 175 micrograms, getting towards 200, anywhere from about 250 to 400 is considered a high dose. Mm. After 600, it just doesn't even absorb. You know, I mean, people can take a thousand and, you know, it doesn't mean much. Stan has said that it just, mm. your brain can only absorb so much and you need a two week period in between for it to clear out and for those receptors to be able to take it anew. So people taking it every day, aren't getting anything either, you know, except for distortion. And, um, and then, uh, um, psilocybin mushrooms, four grams is a very high dose. Uh, one gram would be a low dose. So anywhere from two to four, three to four is considered high. Uh, ayahuasca, God knows, you know, it, you never know. It's always different and it really doesn't, you know, you, I would, I don't know. It, it depends on the person, body weight, the whole deal. So, um, but yeah, I would only look at astrology then to say what, how interesting might this be? And if there was nothing happening, no major transits, 
But I didn't even understand when I started this whole thing that this Uranus, Uranus is the planet of new, you know, um, breakthrough, new ideas, disruptive, Pluto, death, rebirth, Saturn, hard limits, you know, hard lessons, uh, just, you know, going to force you to take a look and, and deal and come up with something strong and solid. It's not fun, I wouldn't say. But I didn't yeah. realize that all those planets were very active uh, in my chart across from what would be a sun sign, which is yourself, you know, how you present to the world. That was, you know, they were opposing each other the whole time. And so every experience I had was a basic death rebirth experience. Wow. <laughs> so I don't know if I, I didn't know that at the time. So yeah, yeah. good. You know, sometimes it, I, would I have, if I knew everyone was going to be hard, would I have done it? Probably not. Okay. Well, one more, one more question before we can kind of, you can kind of tell folks where to find you. Do you, you said you're 62. You don't seem to be, you know, um, ashamed of saying that, which is amazing. What, what, apart from kind of spiritual mindfulness practices, this kind of stuff, what, um, uh, uh, I suppose strategies or practices do you have to take care of your physical bodies that have worked for you really well? Well, I am definitely shifting more towards um, a plant-based diet, um, eating limited amounts of animal protein, uh, basically because I just think they're treated so poorly that um, I, I would hate to uh, cause more suffering. Industrial farming practices are just awful. I want to grow more of my own food. Um, uh, movement that is, you know, I love working out hard, but my body doesn't like it so much as I'm getting older. So sort of limiting what I do to what's necessary. Um, and maintaining a, I don't want to be positive, like Pollyannish, you know, everything's good. Every, it's all beautiful, but, um, trying, trying to be very honest with my feelings. Um, if I'm angry, allowing myself to be angry, um, not being embarrassed about what I feel and um, just honesty and compassion, always compassion. Whoever I meet, if I don't, if we don't agree, if there's conflict, I always try to understand what's causing that person to behave in this way. So just trying to have compassion for people and myself. Yeah, I think that's uh, really kind of good, good advice to live by to allow to feel what what should be felt so it doesn't store in the body and then to yeah to to practicing compassion it just breeds you kind of start oozing this positive energy that actually permeates others and um i think that's a really kind of great note to end on susan i want to thank you so much not just for your time but for this obviously a gargantuan project for putting your energy, your soul, your heart into it for the betterment of all of us. I want to really thank you for that. And can you tell folks where they can find um, uh, just all your websites and any kind of social medias if you want to share? Yeah. So thewayofthepsychonaut.com is the website. And that's where all the links to purchase will be found, as well as access to these past live, stream, live streams of our expert interviews, followed by the Q&As. And that's free. You just have to become a member. Um, and then we have a Facebook page, The Way of the Psychonaut. 
And we, that's a really good thing to follow um, because then you'll be kept up to breast about what's happening, when it's happening, what's coming out. People, various groups are beginning to ask to stream it for their communities to hold um, screenings, and we encourage that. If you have a community that you think might be benefited, um, reach out and, you know, we have a price pricing sort of guideline on the website, but I'll work with anybody. I really just want this to get out there. Uh, and, um, and encouraging people, if you have experts in a field in your community, um, ask us about streaming this. And I'm also happy to connect people if they want to stream, say, Fritjof Capra or Rupert Sheldrake or Richard Tarnas or... Uh, Sean Kelly or Brigitte Groff or Jill Purse or any of the people, Becca Tarnas, for example, any of the people that represent a sort of knowledge base, I'm very sure that these folks would, would be willing to participate um, at some level, uh, you know, to sort of expand on what they shared and answer a particular community's ideas. So I'm happy to facilitate any of that. Well, thank you so much once again, Susan. And of course, we have all those links in the show notes and um, I just want to wish you best of luck with the launch. I certainly will be, you know, cannot wait to watch, watch the, the full feature and um, yeah, best of luck with the launch. And um, thank you once again for your time and for your, for your hard work and bringing Stan's story to the world. Well, Christian, it's been a pleasure speaking with you and I very much appreciate your kind words. So thank you. Thank you for listening to Connecting Minds. We hope you enjoyed this conversation and found it interesting, illuminating, or inspiring. For episode show notes, links, and further information on our guests, please visit christianjordanov.com. If you found this episode valuable, please share it with someone who might also enjoy it. Thank you for being here.